talking today uh, about the firm foundation of God's love, even under all of our anger at what he allows to happen in our lives, even our bitterness, how he can handle that. Uh, and yet he doesn't allow us to become our worst enemy. He intervenes in some painful ways through his reckless love because he does so love us. So if you turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3, and today we'll be starting in verse 1. And to tee it up today, I'd like to tell you uh, two true stories. The first one is really on me. It happened at our house up in Summit County, and it shows why, though I love home improvement projects of all sorts, I hate plumbing. That's one skill that I don't have. And uh, it's like, get thee behind me, Satan. I'm, I had many mistakes, and one of them was I was changing a washer in our kitchen faucet, and no sooner had I gotten the, ha the handle unscrewed, but it's like this gusher of water shot up and was hitting itself against the ceiling, and I, so I lunged underneath the sink to turn off the hot water valve, only to f find that it was like 15 years old and it was frozen open. And so I yanked at that thing until my hand was bloody, and, I, uh, and then I used my other hand, and I wrenched, and I wrenched it, you know, with both hands, and it was bloody too, but that thing wouldn't budge. And so I ran downstairs to find the water main shut off for the house. And I ran so fast that I slipped on the, the wooden stairs, which were pretty slick, and I uh, painted both walls red with my bloody hands as I caught myself and we had just moved into our house and so I couldn't find the main shut off and so I'm flipping on lights and opening doors and you know more and more this uh, uh, a bloody mess of, uh, is ma I'm making of the whole house until I finally find the water shut off valve and shut it down and I am so mad. I'm mad at God. I'm really mad at God that he let this happen on a Saturday afternoon when he knew I had a sermon to prepare and I did not have time for this. And I'm not all about, you know, to let the kitchen faucet get the best of me, so I jump in the car and, ro uh, you know, uh, uh, roar off to Lowe's, which they had just built, to buy the washer and to conquer the frozen valve. And, well, in the meantime, Julie gets home. And she sees, like, you know, blood every <laughs> everywhere but no Brian and so of course she thought that I'd driven myself to the emergency room or something because of this horrible accident and when I got back she was so glad to see me and I thought well I had to do this more often <laughs> she, moral of the story a lot of morals don't do plumbing if you're Brian Myers but uh, but one of the morals is this it is so easy if you're anything like me to get upset at God why are you letting me happen? this happen? You know I have a sermon prayer. Lord, why can't anything go right today? And I won't tell you about the rest of the day, but it was pretty bad. How about giving me a teeny little bit of power to make things work better? It's so easy to judge God. When things build up, we can so easily entertain such judgmental, you know, questionings of what he does or says or allows. And though he can handle our anger, and he doesn't zap us for it, <laughs> and it shows his love for us, he doesn't let us get away with it e either, because we can really become our own worst enemies. Second story is this. Got a Christmas letter from a seminary friend who for the last 37 years or so, since both of us graduated from seminary, he's had this nationwide ministry to gays and lesbians, helping them overcome what really is a spiritual 
bondage. He, he just loves these people like we need to as well. His name is Dave Foster, and it's called Mastering Life Ministries. He was a male prostitute in Hollywood before God con miraculously converted him. He's one of the most loving, uh, non-judgmental people that I've ever met. Well, in this Christmas letter, he told about a recent experience he had. It's the first time that it ever happened to him in 37-some years of ministry, and it says something about our day. He'd been invited to speak at this venerable college that prides itself in being, and I quote, a forum for open discussion of public, social, and cultural values, a community which is open to all people of all backgrounds. His topic was how to, to love people of a different sexual orientation than you might have. He said that he should have suspected something was up when all of a sudden, 20 or 30 extremely you know, sober-looking people walked into the room at the same time as if on cue, and before he could even begin his lecture, the man who looked like the leader of the group, a, a faculty member of the college, no less, stood up and read this list of grievances. Essentially, he was protesting Dave's, Dave's right to say what he was about to say, even though he hadn't heard a word of it. Then he turned his back to the podium, and those who were with him stood up at their seats to block the view of those who had come to listen to the lecture. And then they began to shout, and they kept it up on and off all through his talk. They were obviously very angry, not only at Dave, but at any God who might question their lifestyle. How did the school respond to uh, what David called the gay Gestapo, the thought police? Well, this venerable institution, the one that prides itself in being a forum for open discussion, yada, 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 they responded to these tactics of intimidation um, and suppression, he said, of free, uh, of free speech by siding with them. The daily newspaper printed numerous letters supporting the aggressors, you know, and uh, refused to print letters that criticized the attack. Then two days later, in the Hall of Philosophy, the director of the Department of Religion at the school stood up uh, with the man who led the disruption of his lecture and made it very clear that my friend Dave was the one who had failed to enter into a civil dialogue. Dave ended his letter with a line from uh, his Christmas letter where he told about this, uh, from the old Cole Porter song, Anything Goes. Remember that one? The world has gone mad today. And good's bad today, and black's white today, and day's night today. And this can result in such judgmental questioning by those who will simply not hear or understand, such angry babbling. But Paul's point today, and my point, is that it happens not just to them, but to us too. Not just the pagans, but Pastors who betray something deep in our own hearts, this anger which but for the grace of God and the spirit of God that is in us would have been just as bad as that. And in the years to come, this could get worse among believers if we don't learn how to deal with it now because we are entering a period of human history when it's very likely that the faith of God's people is going to be severely tested when many could fall away. They'll say, if that's the way God's going to treat me, I'm out of here. I've seen that numerous times already over the last 37 years. And we need, we need to steel ourselves against that happening to us, because it could. 
And I know of no other verses in Scripture that can do this better than the ones that we'll be looking at today. Paul's been showing us that we are all in need of God's grace. Even as believers, we still have a flesh that is worthy of hell. Level ground at the cross. We're all in need of God's grace, Christians and non-Christians alike. We've seen that there's often such biblical teaching uh, among God's people and such biblical speaking and yet such hypocritical living, which brought us to the end of Romans 2. Today in chapter 3, we come to what in many ways uh, is the heart of the matter, proof positive of the depravity that's in us that's still in such need of God's mercy, of the bad news that makes the good news so good. And that is, our not, uh, we move from hypocritical questioning to uh, hypocritical living to judgmental questioning. Maybe a better phrase would be our angry babbling that can come especially when we hear the truth about who we are, especially when maybe it's from a spouse. Or when hard times reveal the truth of who we are apart from God which was just what Paul was warning God's people back then was coming, the relentless love of his discipline, the, the discipline that cycles through history over and over again as we've been seeing here in Romans. Today it's Romans 3 again, starting in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Now, I know that's a mouthful. But bear with me, because there's a, a lot here that's very practical. Their condemnation is just. He's talking about God's people back then. He's saying they're prime candidates for God's discipline at the very least. Paul's using what's called a, a rhetorical device here, one that would have been instantly recognized by any Bible-believing Jew. Um, he's responding to the questions of an imaginary critic, some angry babbling, and he's putting it in the context of the rest of Scripture. It's not a friendly critic, but an angry one. And you see this, for instance, uh, all through the Bible, and Paul's following the same pattern where uh, the prophet Malachi uh, uh, preach to the people uh, 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 that, that they'd better watch out. But uh, he said, you, you, are, you have worried the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we worried him? Malachi 2.17. Then God himself says, return to me and I'll return to you, uh, says the Lord of hosts, Malachi 3.7. But they say, how shall we return? This tendency of 
talking back angrily is characteristic of his people. He says, will a man rob God, verse 8. We saw this last week. Yet you are robbing me. But they say, how have we robbed you? Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is there that we have kept his charge? The same back and forth is going on here in Romans 3, 1 to 8. These aren't just rhetorical questions in Romans 3, imaginary questions. They're questions that Paul has been encountering in the synagogues as he presents uh, the truth to God's people. And they're very accusatory. It's the angry babbling of the judgmental questioning of God's own people. And the first question in our passage for today is virtually identical to the one that we just read in Malachi. Then what advantage has the Jew, Romans 3, 1? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? This is what they're saying. A paraphrase would be, if God's people are really as bad as you say they are, why even be a Christian? You're undermining the whole Christian faith, preacher, when you say that so many Christians are failing. Maybe that thought crossed your mind. Why be a Christian? What good is Christianity then? What advantage has the Jew? Moving on to verse 2, Paul says, great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul's not just explaining something to them here. The words that he chooses shows that he's rebuking them which says something, as we'll see. How is he rebuking him? Well, instead of saying they were entrusted with God's word, he says they were entrusted with the oracles of God, which emphasizes the living nature of his word. These words that we have in here are literally the oracles of God, which means that God actually spoke them through the word by the spirit. That's what he's doing right now. Like us, again and again, they had directly encountered the life-changing power of the same word that created the world, and God said it was so, but what did it do for them? It just shows the hardness of their heart. Stephen called them living oracles in Acts 7, in a context where he too rebukes the Pharisees, and it got him stoned. Moses, he said, received living oracles to pass on to you, yet your fathers were unwilling and disobedient. What is the advantage of being a Jew, Paul says? You've got to be kidding. You've got the most important advantage of all. You've got the living word of God, which is living and active and powerful, as it says in Hebrews, yet you're still dead or very, very immature. So who's at fault here? Who's undermining the faith? Me or you? Don't shoot the messenger. What then, verse 3? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? They were saying, if what you're saying about us is really true, it must be God's fault. Apparently, he isn't faithful and true enough to preserve his people. To which Paul responds, may it never be. Strongest uh, statement that he could make in the, in the, in the Greek. May genoito. Verse 4, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. I love 
that phrase. Talk about standing your ground. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Talk about a confession of certainty. Talk about a, a declaration um, uh, of total depravity. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, um, which indeed is the case. God alone is true, and every man is a liar. These days, there's a global, like, chorus against the truth of God. A babble of voices raging against his truth, even in the church, where they're distorting the clear teaching of Scripture, against raging against biblical standards of behavior. And even as we need to respond in love, deep down, we need to respond in our heart of hearts by standing our ground and not questioning it. We must resolve, come what may, to say in our hearts, the whole world may be saying something else. Let God be true, though every man be found a liar. In this case, Paul's saying the whole world may disagree with his doctrine here of total depravity, but God is true. Just as it is written, verse 4b, that you may be justified in your words and might prevail when you enter into judgment. Paul's saying, these words against you, these living oracles, someday are going to prevail. They'll be proven true. You will prove them true whether or not you agree with them. Such is God's word, just as it is written, he says. Paul's quoting here from Psalm 51. It's a quote that is itself a rebuke on what they weren't doing with Paul's teaching. He's quoting here um, when he says that you may be justified in your words and might prevail when you enter into judgment. I don't know if that sounds familiar, but that's from David's confession in Psalm 51. When David confessed his sin after Nathan the prophet rebuked him for murdering Uriah and, and sleeping with Bathsheba, and he repented which is precisely what they should have done after Paul's rebuke. Psalm 51.4, I have done evil in your sight. And here's what Paul quotes. So you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David was saying, you're right, Lord. In sharp contrast to what we're seeing here. You're justified in what you're saying about me and you're blameless in your assessment of me. He was saying, the problem's not you. It, nor is it Nathan the prophet. I, I'm not gonna shoot the messenger. No, it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. For you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. And then David concludes at the end of the psalm, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh Lord, you will not despise. And I've seen that again and again since coming here. It's been a beautiful thing. But apparently, even this reminder of David's example didn't do these Pharisees much good. Far from being broken, they just like got more brazen. And in the very next verse, they're added again. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? He's saying, I'm speaking in human terms. I'm speaking in your terms. Paul had just said that God will be justified as the judge, which means that someday everyone will see that he was right in what he said and righteous in what he did in bringing on his wrath, his discipline, 
to bring us to our senses. Which means that in the end, our wickedness will only like highlight his righteousness. And that's why they went on to say essentially this. Well then, if God gets so much out of it, it's not fair that he gets so upset about it. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, then the God who inflicts wrath is not righteous. To which Paul says, may genoito, may it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? He waves off the ac this accusation, uh, not with an explanation, but with a prediction that's a not-so-friendly reminder that there's a day coming when he is going to come and judge the world. And it will bring him glory, whether or not you agree with what he's doing. Any more questions, he's saying. Instantly a hand goes up again. But if through my lie, verse 7, the truth of God has abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? If the guilty bring him glory, he should be glad that I'm guilty. Our hearts can be so deceptive. In fact, it's good to be bad if i'm doing him such a favor it's not fair that i'm disfavored by him far from being wrathful god should be grateful to the sinner and not only that why not say verse 8 as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm we say let us do evil that good may come so now it goes from questioning the message to slandering the messenger which it almost always does I heard the Apostle Paul say that our depravity is okay because it brings God glory. Sin is in. To which Paul could only shake his head and mutter, verse 8b, our last verse for today, their condemnation is just. <laughs> You've just proved my point. You really should stop talking. You just keep digging your hole deeper. I've been saying that you're under condemnation and now you're proving it. What you're saying proves that your condemnation is just. The discipline that's coming is what you richly deserve. That's the problem with arguing with God. In the end, it, it, it's only going to prove that he's right. Just like happened to Job. Remember him? After all his complaining, after all that God had let happen, uh, to him he thought he had a watertight case ever been there but in the end he said i lay my hand on my mouth who is this who hides who who darkens counsel by words without knowledge that's me i have said too much already i've got nothing more to say notice paul doesn't try to defend himself with these people because their problem was moral and not just, you know, mental. Like the thought police that my friend Dave encountered, they weren't intellectually hungry. They were, like, uh, very insubordinate. They were insubordinately angry <laughs> at Paul's suggestions that they as Jews were no better than Gentiles at this sweeping generalization that they're all, without excuse, the whole lot of them. You see, an unrepentant heart will go to any length to defend itself. They'll turn the world upside down to prove that they're right side up. I've done that with Julie. 
And underneath it all, they're just confirming, condemning the true God in their heart of hearts. You know, I've seen something so many times over the last 37 years when we hit the hard passages of Scripture. Um, the same kind of angry judgments that Paul ran into in Romans 3. And it only proves his point. All of a sudden, out of the blue, someone will start saying, say, he's too condemning a preacher. Where is the grace? In spite of, you know, six weeks of encouraging messages that came before that one. He's, he's misapplying the scripture. He's misinterpreting the Bible. When in fact, I'm using the same principles of interpretation that I used in the encouraging passages that they so enjoyed, and they did not say that I misinterpreted that. On the other hand, your response to these hard chapters in the book of Romans, for the most part, really proves that you do want to hear the unadulterated word of God, and that's a rare thing in our country. But still, it happens to us, to all of us, myself included, when God, you know, hits a raw nerve. It's not just the gay Gestapo. It happens to Christian pastors when they're working on faucets. There's this knee-jerk reaction that betrays something in us and could easily have raged out of control, but for the Spirit of God in us. And still, sometimes it does rage out of control. And it only goes to show that we're all in need of his mercy all the time. And praise God for it. When God does hit a raw nerve, whether through hard words or through hard circumstances, the flesh will often start writhing, weeping and babbling, and there's gnashing of teeth. I felt that in me. It's what happened to Job in his affliction. None other than Job. God said, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Job 2, 3. So, phew, we're in good company. Yet still, he questioned God to the point that God had to rebuke him for four chapters. Will you really annul my judgment, Job 40, verse 8, what I have allowed to happen in my sovereign plan Will you condemn me that you may be justified? It happened to Asaph in Psalm 73. He questioned God to the point that he said, My heart was embittered and I was pierced within. I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee, O Lord. My feet came close to falling. My steps slipped. It happens to Jews, Gentiles, Christians, to pastors and parishioners alike for all are under sin. So what do you do about it? How do you respond to reproof, to correction, to God's discipline? Whether when you hear it from the pulpit or from a friend or worst of all from a spouse or the school of hard knocks that we call the Christian life. The animal, bon Bonhoeffer said, the animal that we call the flesh can be both sudden and fierce. God knows. If you're anything like me, there will always be some fleshly indignation when the, the, the Spirit of God moves towards conviction, as, uh, uh, especially when it's maybe through your spouse or your parents. When they talk to you about things in your life, how do you respond? Or maybe through your pastor. What do you do? Well, we'll either be broken or we will become very brazen 
will either become bitter or better. And it's far easier on ourselves when we become bitter. We'll either grow better because of the message or get bitter at the messenger. It's all over the place. It's all over the world. Deep down, there can be such rumbling, such angry questioning, such judgmental babbling. And my fear for the church is that when things get hard, we won't be prepared for that and people will fall away. That's what the scripture predicts. These days especially, the world has gone mad today, and good's bad today, and black's white today, and night, day's night today. Even in the church, even in me. You know, Christ told a lot of stories, and stories are sometimes the best way to bring the truth home to the heart. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote about this tendency of ours to get in God's faith which all of us do at one time or another. It's in a book you might have read called Till We Have Faces. It's the story of a woman named Orul, Queen of Gloam. It's a story that's good to keep in mind when God does something that you don't understand or when the times get hard and you feel like saying, if, that, if that's the way God's going to treat me, I'm out of here. She writes it to accuse God. Maybe you can relate. She said she wanted to tell all he has done to me from the very beginning as if I were making my complaint of him before a judge, but there is no judge between God and man, and the God of the mountain will not answer me. Ever felt that way? God's been too hard on you, that he's been expecting too much of you, that he's just left you alone to change on your own, and he won't answer you? God took the queen's beloved sister, Psyche, and she never forgave him for it, at least not until the very end. He does things like that to us, too. He takes mothers, fathers, jobs, homes, health. Anything is fair game for him, it seems. And we know in theory that it's for our good, but sometimes it's like it's just too hard. And we can develop like this watertight case against him, and deep within there can be this angry babbling of judgmental questioning in the end god does answer her she goes on this long journey to the mountains uh, lugging this great manuscript that she's written the book of her complaint and at the very end she meets the eagle woman it said who are you or rule queen of gloom said i what is that role you carry in your hands it is my complaint against god said i the eagle clapped his wings and lifted his head and cried out with a loud voice, She's come at last. Here is the woman with a complaint against God. Immediately a hundred, hundred echoes roared from the face of the mountain. Here is the woman, a complaint against God, plaint against God. Come, said the eagle. They seized on me and hustled me and passed me on from one to another, each shouting towards the mountain face. Here she comes, here is the woman. And voices, it seems, from within the mountain answered them. Bring her in. Bring her into the court. Her case is to be heard. Here she is. She's come at last. To the judge. To the judge. Then the voices changed and grew quieter. And now it was, let her go. Make her stand up. Silence in the court. Silence for her complaint. Never in peace or war have I seen so vast an assembly. There were tens of thousands of them, all silent, every face watching me. And on the same level with me, though far away, sat the judge. Read your complaint, said the judge. I looked at the roll in my hand and saw at once that it was not the 
book I had written, or I didn't think it was. It couldn't be. It was far too small. It was, an, it was too old, a little shabby, crumpled thing. Nothing like the great book I had worked on day after day. I found myself unrolling it. It was written all over inside, but the hand was not like mine, or so I thought. It was all a vile scribble. Each stroke mean and yet savage. I read and read and read. After I don't know how long I was interrupted. Enough, said the judge. There was utter silence all around me. And now for the first time I knew what I had been doing. While I was reading, it seemed strange to me that the reading took so long for the book was now a small one. But now I knew that I had been reading it over and over, perhaps a dozen times. I would have read it forever, quick as I could, starting the first word again almost before the last was out of my mouth if the judge had not stopped me. And the voice I read it in was strange to my ears. There was given me the certainty that this was my real voice. There was silence in the dark assembly long enough for me to have read my book out yet again. At last the judge spoke. Are you answered, he said. Yes, said I. And then she concludes, the complaint <laughs> was the answer. To have heard myself making it was to be answered. When the time comes at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech which has lain at the center of your soul for years, which you have all that time idiot-like been saying over and over, when that time comes, when at last you see him and hear yourself, you will have your answer. just like Job did. <laughs> we can sound so like the queen, like the gay activists against those who bring the truth in love, like the Pharisees so brazenly angry at Paul's questions, like the mutterings of a certain pastor whose house gets flooded with water. What about you? Have you ever had a complaint against God as though he's answerable to you? Is this what I get for being a Christian? That's gratitude for you. Have you been reading a little shabby, crumpled complaint over and over again? About what's happened to you or to someone you love? My friend Dave wrote about this in the same Christmas letter in which he wrote about them. <laughs> he began by pointing the finger at us. He said, Dear friends and family, what a year, what a year, what a year. <laughs> the age-old question of why God allows evil is thrown in our faces with unexpected ferocity. I have found that whether God provides an answer to such questions, an answer that satisfies my doubts and fears, often depends on the attitude of my heart when I ask it. Unseen to most of us are interior judgments against the goodness of God. Often we judge him guilty in the hidden places of our hearts even before asking our questions. We lay our judgments against God when in fact, like Job, we know nothing. In such cases, our question 
is really a condemning judgment more than a genuine search for understanding. And that's exactly what was going on in Romans 3 among God's own people. And there's nothing new under the sun. So what's the solution? How do we steel ourselves against the times that may be coming, that may be here, when the faith of God's people may be sorely dis, uh, uh, tested by his discipline and many could fall away because of what he lets happen? Well, his love is the ultimate answer. He can handle our complaints. And <laughs> the psalmist complained to God a lot. Far safer to do it with him than away from him. But you've got to put a comma after that and not a period. Because in addition to talking to him, confession, like David did, is the answer, as we've already seen. Like I had to do way back then, before, before I was ready to preach the Sunday after I shed my blood because of that, that flood. I had to get my heart right. Confession. Another part of the answer is prayer, and I, I'll close with this. It needs to go from confession, really, to thanksgiving. I thought we closed today by practicing together the kind of prayer that can get us through such times. Maybe you're in one of those times today. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so delighted that you are both loving and sovereign and that you cause all things to work together for good to those who love you, to those who are called according to your purpose. So I thank you for each disturbing or humbling situation in my life, for each breaking or cleansing process you are allowing, for each problem or hindrance, for each thing that triggers in me anxiety or anger or pain. And I thank you in advance for each disappointment, each demanding duty, each pressure, each interruption that may arise in the coming hours and days. In spite of what I think or feel when I get my eyes off you, I choose not to resist my trials as intruders, but to welcome them as friends. Thank you that each difficulty is an opportunity to see you work, that in your time you will bring me out to a place of abundance. I rejoice that you plan to enrich and beautify me through each problem, each conflict, each struggle, that through them you expose my weaknesses and needs, my hidden sins, my self-centeredness, my self-reliance, my pride. Thank you that you use trials to humble me and perfect my faith and produce in me the quality of endurance that they prepare the soil of my heart for the fresh new growth in godliness that you and I both long to see in me, and that my momentary troubles are producing for me an eternal glory that far outweighs them all as I keep my eyes focused on you. I'm grateful that you look beyond my superficial desire for a trouble-free life. Instead, you fulfill my deep-down desire to glorify you, enjoy your warm fellowship, and become more like your son. I thank you for the bitter things. They've been a friend to grace. They've driven me from the paths of ease to storm the secret place. And Father, I thank you that even when we can't do that, that you, in your love, are still there. 
and that you can break the chains that bind us and that keep us from you, that bind us to our anger and keep us from your love. We're grateful for your relentless love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.